Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So as you think about all of the old Greek myths, all of the sort of stories that come from those Greek times where they talked about the gods and all the things that they did, most of those stories are all sort of moral tales, right? We get the idea that a lot of them are like Aesop's fables. You guys know Aesop's fables, things like the tortoise and the hare. That's the only one I can think of right now. But, you know, the tortoise and the hare, that's a really good one. They're all of these sort of stories that have a moral zinger at the end, right? And, and, you know, that's why slow and steady wins the race. That's why you always leave a note. That's why, you know, whatever the sort of moral of the story is, that's sort of what they are. Because in many ways, the way that Greek religion worked in the ancient times was you chose one god, And then you lived your life and said, okay, how am I going to please this God? So maybe your family, you chose Zeus and you did things that made a lightning God happy. Not exactly sure what those were, but you did those things. Maybe you chose, maybe you chose the God or goddess of the hunt. Maybe you chose the God of love, whatever it was, your family sort of decided that this is going to be our patron God. And we're going to do whatever it takes to please this God. That's sort of how it worked back then. Well, isn't it good that we have gone away from that? Isn't it nice that we don't live our lives with some God that we have chosen to rule our lives and that we have to stand before and that we have to please? I'm glad that we as a society have decided to jettison that idea and we've moved on. Unfortunately, we've done something really interesting. We have replaced choosing this one patron God like the Greek society did. And we have decided to make everyone else around us a little God. We have decided as a culture, for better or for worse, no, actually just for worse, right? That the way that we are going to construct our lives is that we are looking so dearly for other people around us to validate us. We, we are looking for other people to be the people that say, ah, yes, you are worth it. You have that. You matter. And we are willing to to serve up our offerings of likes and favorites and retweets and doing it for the grams. Right. Because what has happened is we have replaced the idea of the opinion of a deity, the opinion of a God with the opinion of lots of little gods. Think about the way that you live your life. How do you feel when you get the right number of likes on your post? How do you feel when the person that matters to you most says you did a good job? You see, all of us are searching for some sort of external validation. We want so badly for someone other than us to be pleased with us. And so what we've done is we've elevated the voices of everyone else around us. And the problem is that most of us know is that this creates an extremely high level 
of anxiety. If I am constantly looking for validation from others around me or from one specific person, whatever it is, if I am constantly looking for that to validate me, I'm also constantly anxious. I'm worried. What, what if that person doesn't like this? What if, what if people get upset because I posted this? What if, and we live under this constant fear. Why? Why are we anxious? Because anxiety is when whatever God or gods that we have chosen is inconsistent and capricious. Think about that. That's what causes our anxiety. Our anxiety comes from oftentimes the fact that what we've chosen to build our life on is a moving target. And if that's what you're always, you're always scared that you're going to miss it. That feeling of you're always going to miss it is what we experience oftentimes day to day as anxiety. Because we're scared that we're not going to be able to please whoever or whatever we have chosen to be our gods. But what if there's another way? What if there is another way to sort of think about this? Well, I'm glad you ask because that's exactly what Peter is going to talk to us about this morning. So what I'd like to do is I'm going to read the first 12 verses of first Peter two. And as I do, I'd like you all to stand as we hear God's word. So please stand with me. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3000 years ago, 2000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. What Peter knows and what Peter is trying to tell us 
is that you and I are far too concerned with what other people think of us and not nearly concerned enough about what God says about us. We're far too concerned with what other people think and not nearly concerned enough about what God says. Peter starts this passage and he kind of lists off, it seems like five random sins, right? He sort of talks about malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. What's interesting about those five, about that list of five, is guess what? All of them, in a way, require another person involved in the scenario. You need to lie to somebody else. I mean, we can lie to ourselves, but like, you know, you really, for a lie to be like a really good lie, you got to lie to somebody else, right? If we, if we are hypocritical, it's because we're telling someone else that we're something that we're not. If we envy something, it requires that there be somebody who is envied. Slander is Right? Do, do you see malice is hatred towards another person, right? Very rarely have I had malice towards a chair, right? I don't hate this chair. It's just a chair, right? Malice requires that it have an object. Hypocrisy requires that I'm lying to somebody. Deceit the same way. All of these are ways that we are concerned with what other people think. Why? Why do we feel the need to be hypocritical? Why do I feel the need to prove to you that I'm more righteous than I am, that I'm a better person than I am? Because I want you to think that about me, because I'm concerned about what you think about me. Why is it that I need to slander somebody else? It's because if I bring them down to a lower level than me, I look better and you think better of me. What is it that we do when we envy but want something that somebody else has. See, all of these things are ways that we are concerned far too much and too focused on what other people think, what other people do. I do this too. And I get to cloak mine in a very religious way, right? I'm concerned about, about what's going on in the lives of the people of City Church. And so I'm going to think about that. I'm going to think about that in my sermon instead of doing the hard work of looking at my own heart. I'm going to use nice religion. I'm going to use what happened at small groups this past Sunday night. So I don't have to think about and I don't have to do the hard work of looking at myself. See, I will pick any distraction I can, any external thing I can so that I don't have to take a good hard look at myself and the ways that I am far too concerned with what other people think. And Peter says, we need to be doing something that's the opposite of this. When he says we're doing the opposite, what he talks about is that we need to crave the pure spiritual milk of the word of God. We need to crave the gospel. Because one of the things that the message of Jesus Christ does is it tells us to take our eyes off of the crowd, to take our eyes off of the one person that we fixated on, to take our eyes off of that situation and look up to Jesus. That is the beginning of the gospel, but it is also the thing that continues to be our need to grow and grow and grow. And so 
Peter says, look, as you begin to think through this, the first thing you need to know is that our hearts are bent to look around and find our validation, find our significance in what other people think and say about us. And then Peter goes on a little bit of a rabbit trail because he asks this. So some of us find Jesus meaningful. Some of us find our value in Jesus and other people do not. Why is that? How can it be? Some of you know this from, from your families. Some of you know this from your, your friends, your coworkers. You can have almost identical experiences being raised, almost identical experiences in your education. Fill in the blank. And yet some people find Jesus meaningful in their lives and other people don't. And Peter tells us the reason why is because some people have had their eyes opened. See, for all of us, what changes our hearts is not our effort. What changes our hearts is not our merit. What changes us is God opening our eyes to something that is beautiful. Let me give you an illustration of how this works in our lives. Um, Ten years ago, you did not think that you needed an iPad because you didn't know what an iPad was because there was no such thing. Right. And then Steve Jobs came out and his black turtleneck and his slickly produced. I was about to say PowerPoint, but it's it's keynote. He wasn't using, you know, his slickly produced keynote and says, hey, I've made a giant phone for everybody and you're going to love it. And I can remember watching that going. There's no way it's a giant phone. Who cares? And now what? Many of us, whether we use Apple devices or Samsung devices, whatever kind of tablet we have, probably cannot imagine our life without a tablet. What happened to us? What what changed? Our eyes were opened. We saw, oh, look at that. I can I can surf the web. Oh, I can I can play. I can play that. I I can do my email on that and I can take it anywhere. And it's it's real small. I can just hold it like this. Oh. Well, that's convenient. I like that. I want that. Our eyes were opened and we realized the beauty, the meaningfulness of something else. This is the story of all of our faith. God opens our eyes. Or, or to, to use an analogy that, that Peter's using in this case, he's changing our taste buds. Because many of you know what it's like to have your taste buds changed. Some of you guys grew up and... and you just hated certain vegetables. And then one day you you went to somebody's house and maybe it's a friend. Maybe it was a a girlfriend or boyfriend that you were trying to impress and they served you Brussels sprouts. And instead of looking at them and going, no hard pass, I don't do Brussels sprouts. You wanted to impress them. And so what did you do? You took a deep breath and you had a scoop of Brussels sprouts and something happened. You went, Oh, well, this is not so bad. This is covered in, this is covered in bacon. I've really liked this. My taste buds have changed. And now I realize that I like them. Peter says, look, what's going to change your heart and mine is not how hard we work. It's not how good you behave. It's not how well you perform taking your eyes off of other people. What's going to change our hearts truly is when Jesus 
changes our taste buds. You see, all of us need a miracle in order to grow in our faith. So for those of us who are Christians, this is a call to pray both for ourselves and for those that we love. Because guess what? You're never going to argue your friend and your family into loving and believing Jesus. I promise you. It's an argument you can't win. It's a no-win argument. What you can do is pray that Jesus changes taste buds, that Jesus opens blind eyes. And if you're not a Christian, one of the things that City Church always wants to do is be a place where you can come and see. We always want to open up the kitchen. We always want to give you a view of what it is we believe that we have. And that's one of the reasons City Church exists. So then, if that's what we're supposed to do, is take our eyes off of what other people think of us and put it on what God says about us, it's worth looking at what God says about us, which is what Peter explains to us. He begins to go through and say that you are a chosen generation, that you are a royal priesthood, that you are a special called out people, that you were once not God's people, but now you are God's people. You were once people who did not have mercy, and now you are people who do have mercy. He sort of starts piling these things on, and what he's doing is he is kind of sweeping up the whole Old Testament into a bunch of catchphrases. He is sweeping up all of these illusions from the people of God coming out of Egypt and the whole Moses, let my people go, and Charlton Heston, and and he's just summing that up, and he's summing Daniel and the exile. He's sort of wrapping all of that up into these phrases and he's saying church you because you are united to Jesus are ultimately what all of that was leading up to you are God's chosen people you are God's holy priesthood you are God's temple the place where he dwells all of these are illusions and and then the part about you were once not God's people and now you are you'd once not received mercy and now you have received mercy that's referencing Hosea and trust me it's a very funny story um, that we're not going to get into today. But if you want to read something interesting, read the first three chapters of Hosea and, uh, and have some fun and see what uh, that is all about. But all of these Old Testament allusions, one, are communal. You, individually, are not a royal priesthood. You, individually, are not a chosen people. It's us, together the church as a whole. And not only that, the thing that Israel always failed to do that Jesus did is that he lived out this identity in a way that looked outwards towards others. See, Israel was always content to hold on to it and say, I'm God's chosen people. Nobody can take this away from me. I'm just going to hold it right here. And God said, no, you should go. The picture of this that we see most clearly is the story of Jonah. God says, Jonah, you should go preach in Nineveh. And Jonah says, hard pass. I'm getting on a boat and I'm going away from Nineveh. God says, no, 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 go to Nineveh. Jonah says, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, Instead, I'm going to get on a boat. God says, okay, well, yeah, no, that's not the best method of sea travel for you. I have gotten another method of sea travel for you. Uh, It's the belly of a fish. Here we go. God says, okay, Jonah, now that you spent three days in a fish, now that you've got vomited onto the land, how about we go to Nineveh and preach? 
And Jonah does. And the people come to know God. But does Jonah the prophet get excited that all these people have come to know God? Does Jonah the prophet get excited that the enemies of Israel are now people of Israel themselves? No. He gets mad and goes outside the city and crosses his arm and sits down on the ground and begins to pout and say, God, I really wish you would have destroyed them. This is a picture so much of of the way that Israel failed to live out their mission as a people. City Church, this is a call to us to live out our identity as Christians, live out our identity of who God says we are towards others. Now, for some of us, we need to hear that this is what God says about us because the voices that we hear from others, the voices that we hear from our past are constantly the voices that we do not measure up. Many of us are plagued with this idea that we are never quite enough. And we're scared that if somebody really knows us, if somebody knows who we really are in the deep, dark parts of our heart, that they're not going to love us. And that's the beauty of what Peter is telling us in this passage is that Jesus already knows. Jesus knows the stuff that you try so desperately to hide from others. Jesus knows the stuff that you would never want connected to your social media. Jesus knows the apps that when they say, would you like to connect to Facebook? You say, no, no. And delete my cookies. Jesus knows the thing that you are deathly afraid that someone else here is going to find out. And he loves you the same. That he loved you before the beginning of the world. Before you were even born, Jesus loved you. When Jesus died, Jesus died for you. He says that is your identity. Not what other people say about you, not how well you morally perform, not how well you get things done for Jesus. No, your identity is in the fact that you are loved and called by God. And so our anxiety is quelled by a God who has already decided to love you. He has already decided to put his affection on you. And so as we begin to let that sink in, he doesn't just tell us about our new identity, but he also lets us know and begins to say, and here's how you should live because of that. You see, what's interesting is for many of us, especially those of us who have been Christians for a long time, the way that it works is we hear this and we go, ah, yes, I shouldn't care what other people think about me. I shouldn't care what other people think about me. And we use that as a very subtle excuse to be a jerk. Because anytime anybody does anything and they don't, and we do something and somebody doesn't like it, it's okay. My identity is in Jesus. Doesn't matter what you think of me. No, you're being a jerk. You can't use God's love and acceptance of you as an excuse to be a terrible person. This is why he says, listen, as the church, you should, you should let this identity so change the way that you live. That when anybody tries to throw shade at you, my word's not his, that they won't be able to because of how you are loving others. And the way that we become free to genuinely love and care for others, the way that we become free from the, 
the hassles, the, the burden of trying to please a certain person or to please a group of people is by living out our faith in Jesus. And that changes us and frees us to genuinely care about other people, to genuinely see our lives changed. City Church, this is not something that you and I can do on our own. This is something we all need each other for. Because this is not something that Jesus is just doing in your heart and just doing in mine. He is doing it in all of us. He's giving us new passions. He's giving us a new way of thinking. And he is doing this because we need him to do it. City Church, Jesus ultimately was the chosen one. He was the royal priest who stood between God and man who offered a sacrifice, not of a, of a lamb or a bull, but his own body, so that you and I might be the people of God. This identity that we have is not something we can earn. It is a gift, again and again and again, that we have to receive. And so Jesus is inviting you, City Church, and all of us together into a new life that is free from the opinions of others, that is free from the anxiety of the moving target of pleasing other people, and is settled on what Jesus has already decided and said about you. Jesus is inviting you into a new way of life, where, as he even says in this passage, where you will not be put to shame. Jesus is calling us city church to repent of the ways that we have believed the lies that have been told to us the lies that we're not good enough that we're not smart enough that we're not pretty enough that we're not enough and find that in jesus he has already said who we are let's pray